Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 14th, 2019, and this is episode 2490 of the Survival Podcast. Today we're going to talk about growing food in small spaces with our special guest, Nicole Schrouder. And she lives in Washington, D.C. And get this, guys. She's growing about 300 pounds of food a year. That's impressive, I know, yeah. You want it to be really impressive? She's not on a tenth of an acre. She's not on a twentieth of an acre. She's not on a thirtieth of an acre. How about one fortieth? One fortieth of an acre. That's not even... Uh, That's not even something you should usually use the word acre to describe. It's about 1,600 square feet, 300 pounds of food. She's going to be on today to talk to us about how she's doing that. We're going to talk about a bunch of stuff today, too. I learned something in this interview I didn't even know existed to deal with insect pests. How, what if you could grow a fungus specific to a certain insect pest that would basically mummify that insect pest and you know get rid of that insect, even if typical... You know, organic insecticides are ineffective. Or what about an insect pest that doesn't have any natural predators like squash bugs? What if you could, yeah, there's a way to do that. It's absolutely awesome. And we're not going to talk just about that today. We're going to have a conversation about it. In fact, this was so interesting. I'm reaching out to a dude right now named Trad Cotter. You'll hear about that today when we get into it, um, who is kind of a pioneer in this growing specific fungi to destroy specific insect pests. That's just one of the many amazing things you're going to hear about today from Nicole. We'll get to all of that and more in just a bit. Uh, before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Ridge Wallet. Uh, Ridge Wallet has really changed my life just a little bit for the better. I used to be the guy that walked around with a billfold in his back pocket that was about as thick as, as a really big ham sandwich, man. It was thick. And that meant it screwed up my posture. It meant that when I had to drive somewhere, I always pulled my wallet out and stuck it in my little cubby hole. That meant that sometimes I forgot it and I go into a restaurant or a store and don't have my wallet and got to go back and get it. And then I found the Ridge Wallet. They reached out to me about becoming a sponsor, and I had a spot that was just beginning to open, so I, I, I gave it to them. They sent me a Ridge Wallet. I took all my stuff out of my wallet, and what fit in the Ridge Wallet, I put in the Ridge Wallet. What didn't, I put on the shelf. And said, you know, it's only a month, Jack. After one month, if you feel like you really can't live without that stuff, you can go back to your old billfold. The billfold is still sitting on the shelf next to the stuff, and I am still carrying my Ridge Wallet. We're at two and a half years now. And I'm also now pr protected from identity theft, because almost every card you have in your wallet now has a little RFID card in it, RFID tag. And guess what? For a few bucks, you go on eBay, get some parts, and make yourself a sniffer, and go, a go around wanting people's asses and, 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 and purses and steal their information off their credit cards. That's a real thing. With Ridge Wallet, that doesn't happen. Check them out today, RidgeWallet.com. And remember, if you're an MSB member, you do get a discount at RidgeWallet.com. Next up today, J.M. Bullion. You know, I was sitting today, early this morning, I woke up and said, you know, with what I do, I do have to watch some news once in a while, so I know what's going on. I put on Fox News. And uh, a certain uh, company that sells silver and gold was advertising. 
uh, that I won't mention. I won't give them the, the dignity of their name on my show. And and they said, Silver, it's trending higher. And I was like, um, you've been running that same stupid effing ad for three years. So has it been trending higher for three years? Or were you lying then and not now or now and not then? Like, what what is the deal? You guys know who I'm talking about if you've ever watched Fox News. They advertise all the time. The silver and gold market, I learned the hard way, it can be a gutter. So when I found JM Bullion and I knew a company would always deal above board with me and my members, I knew that's who I needed to, to work with. And, you know, this, this company that advertises on Fox News um, said, if you buy $5,000 worth of silver or gold, they'll give you some free coins. Well, that would be a discount. That's all that is. It just, it's, it's just a discount. And you have to spend five grand with them to get a discount. Jam Bullion, if you're an MSB member, will give you your discount at $300 worth of purchase. You can get a discount. It's not huge. It's a discount at $300. Bucks. Check them out today, jambullion.com. Remember, I think silver and gold should make up about 5 to 10% of your net wealth is your wealth assurance program. With that, let's go ahead and dig into this topic. We're talking today about permaculture and really food production, whether you're dealing with permaculture or just organic gardening, in the small spaces, my special guest today is Nicole Schauder. Um, she's really been doing some amazing stuff. In 2017, Permaculture Gardens, her, her, her thing, uh, won the grand prize at the Green Festival in Washington, D.C. for Most Innovative Sustainable Brand. Their work's been featured in the Huffington Post, Permaculture Re Research Institute, Blog of Australia, and greenamerica.org. They also volunteer at their local Title I school and started a permaculture garden after-school program for elementary kids there. Today, she joins us to talk about growing food in small spaces and shares her story of how her and her husband, Dave, grow 300 pounds of food, again, on 1 40th of an acre. We're also going to talk about controlling pests, HOA issues, the advantages of small space growing, and more. And with that, hey, Nicole, welcome to the Survival Podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I, I'm really glad to have you on. Today we're going to be talking about growing food in the small spaces. If it's great, because I've been doing a series called Half Acre Homesteading. I actually skipped it this week because I thought this would, we'll just tag this as Half Acre Homesteading and put it in because we're talking about growing food in the small spaces. And Half Acre is kind of big for you. We'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, I, I think it's going to be a great interview. But before we dig into that, can you kind of talk to us about like, how you got where you are, like take us back to your you know, childhood or high school or something like that, and you know, you're, you're trying to figure out what you want to do in the world, and, and how do you end up in, in Washington, D.C., of all places, and how does that lead you to growing your own food? All right, well, I come from the Philippines, a third-world country, and, and I've seen the poor up close, and I've seen landfills and people living there. So I think that sparked in me like this seed of wanting to do something for the environment and um, being you know, environmentally conscious, even though at that point in time, there wasn't much of a movement, even in the Philippines, to to do anything about the climate or the environment. And um, when I came to the States, because a lot, if not all, of the Filipinos' wishes is to have a better life somewhere else. Um, and for those who don't have those wishes, I think that they're, you know, they're just really noble souls that keep prodding on but my my family migrated all of us to the states in the early 2000s and after college i 
um, my parents got a job in the DC area and I was, and that's where I migrated to. So that's where I met my husband and I was totally a black thumb. Hmm. I, I grew up in Manila, so I didn't, I didn't grow, there was, you know, I didn't grow in the farms, grew up in the farms and I didn't grow food there. I did have a grandma though, who was always encouraging me to grow something that was flower. Like her, her specialty was orchids and she had a big mango tree. Um, and, um, that sort of also helped me as I, as I grew older. So when we first got married, our eldest kid, who's now 12, had really severe eczema and she turned out to be allergic to pork, chicken, eggs, dairy, nuts, and wheat. And because of this, we started questioning the food system and decided, okay, it was time to buy organic. So, you know, we didn't, we started with the milk. Then the eggs slowly, not all at once, until we found our grocery bill was getting higher and higher. And we thought quite naively, why not, why not grow, grow this stuff? How, how hard could it be? But our first attempts were disheart, disasters. They're disheartening. And we didn't know what we were doing. And we felt helpless. Like there was no way out of the health issues and the food issues, except maybe if we earned more money, which wasn't happening. But luckily, because as a couple, my husband Dave and I value date nights, we were on a bookstore date and we stumbled on a book. It was a book by a British family called the Strawbridges that practiced permaculture and created a homestead in England. And it was one of the earlier 10 years ago homesteading books. Well, they mentioned permaculture techniques there that they used to, their, to garden and to heat their house and, and so on. And we thought, wow, that's a cool concept. So we learned more about it. The two videos that really sold us for permaculture were, can you guess, Jack? <laughs> oh, let's see. Um, maybe something from Toby Hemingway, right? Uh, Guy's Garden would be yeah. a guess, maybe. Uh, that. The, but that wasn't the one. No? No? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure then. I mean, that's like the... Yeah, it, was, it was Jeff Lawton's Greening the Desert. Oh, okay. So I thought you said book. Uh, oh, we're so sorry. No, no. What, okay, so what, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's me too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah the, the thing that hit me. Absolutely. I saw that video, and I was like, "You need to shut up and stop complaining about how hot it is in Texas and go plant some stuff." Because yeah, you got nothing to complain about. If if they they, they grew mushrooms in a day, shut up and get to work, Jack. I mean, yeah. So definitely, absolutely. And you did. And you did. Absolutely. <laughs> But you did, yeah, you did more, more than just that plant a few mushrooms. You did, <laughs> planted a whole revolution here. So, and then, so that was one of it. And then John Liu's lowest plateau documentary in China. Yeah. Where they, yeah, where they mandated the Chinese to build, uh, to plant trees. And, and all of a sudden from being dirt poor, they had economy, they had everything was, was transformed. And, and I thought that if permaculture could change the whole world, the whole whole communities like that, having come from a third world country and seeing the poorest of the poor, then it could help us. So when, when I saw this, I could see this glimmer of hope in our dire situation, and that's what drew me into permaculture. And we've been permies ever since then. I got certified under Wayne Wiseman, um, who was taught by Bill Mollison in, in 2015, and my husband Dave did a Jeff Lawton online course in 2017. So. That's awesome. I'll tell you what, you mentioned the, the you know, John D. Liu with the Lost Plateau in um, China. One of the things that really 
got through to me was how similar people are everywhere. Because, see, I would have thought in China, if China decides, okay, we're going to fix this, the uh, government decides that's what we're going to do, and we're going to plant trees, and we're going to tell people they can't graze their goats there or whatever, and that we're going to put this new management strategy in place. Of all places, China with a, a straight-up communist government, the government owns everything, so they own the land. You know, there's, there is true totalitarianism. So you would have thought they would have just said, okay, we're doing this, and you're doing it, and if you don't do it, you're in trouble, and then everybody would do it. When, when John told that story, it was still like, well, even there, the government yeah. had to go in and get the buy-in from the people yeah. and get them on board because the project was so, you know, if you just want to take some one dude's house, you grab him, whip him out, take his house if you're, if you're a thug government. But if you want to transform something that big, they had to actually get the people on board. I'm sure they could use a little strong arm and elbow here and there, but in the end, they still had to win the population over. And I think a lot of our solutions, that's what we have to do. We have to win people over to them. And I don't think it would be hard now in that area of China if there was, like, let's say, another environmental disaster 200 miles away. And they said, we want to do this here. I don't think they would have to push so hard. Because now people can look and go, well, it's pretty cool down there. I, I want that. And I think that's what's cool about small spaces like we're going to talk about today. Like you and I are not going to go transform a plateau, right? We're just, <laughs> we don't have the resources and, and what have you. But we can transform a backyard. And then that next door neighbor who you're like, you know, you should really plant a garden or whatever is like, I don't have time for that hippie crap. All of a sudden, like when they can look and see what you're doing, well, they kind of want a little piece of it too. Um, oh, yeah. Now, you – you got into this, I think you mentioned already, because you had some allergy issues with your kids, right? Yes. And, and go ahead. Oh, and, and, and right now their allergies have actually decreased. So we feel like maybe that's, you know, we don't have any, any like scientific proof or, or testing, but um, now my daughter and son are just allergic to um, nuts and not all nuts. They can eat almonds and certain other nuts. I think that's a vast improvement from what it was. You know, and I think a lot of people are in the same boat with you. Like, they figure out that there's a problem with their diet. And it may be an allergy problem. It may be some sort of other autoimmune response, systemic inflammation. It may be heart disease. Who knows what it is? It may be uh, they're starting to develop some signs of early warnings of potential cancers and stuff, and they decide, I want to eat a lot better. And then they're like, okay, great. So they go out to the store and they're like, holy crap, if you want to eat better can be kind of expensive, especially if you don't want to go vegan or whatever and you want to kind of, you know, have access to a broad array of foods, which I think is probably a better way to live. And then so then they get in and grow their own food out of economic reasons. But what a lot of people do is say, like, well, I don't have much space. So let's talk about the small space and what we really mean by that. So, I, like I said, I've been doing this thing called half-acre homesteading, and I've been saying, you know, that applies to everybody. You can, don't have to have a half-acre, a tenth of an acre, a twentieth of an acre, what have you. Like, Or if you have a big property, then think of this as your zone one. Well, you're growing like 300-plus pounds of food on one-fortieth of an acre. Not one-fourth, folks, one-fortieth. I don't even know if I've ever heard an acre expressed <laughs> It's the 40th. I think we're down to square feet, like at that point. Yeah, 1,600 square feet. 1,600 square feet. So you're talking about, you know, kind of a, a, a mid-tier three-bedroom house square footage, like That's just the it. house, yeah. right? 
uh, not counting the garage in most houses. So how do you guys do that? How do you produce that much in that small a space? Because, you know, the other thing about that small a space is it's one thing if all of that space is, like, perfect solar aspect and everything. Mm -hmm. If that's all you got, it ain't going to – because there's going to be a fence here and another house there, and I think you're in a townhouse. So how do you manage to make that work and produce that much food? Well, the answer is in the different layers of the food system food forest so we have we try to utilize all the, the space that we can vertically we grow vertically we grow in the ground in pots we grow indoors we, our nurseries are front are south facing windows and that's where we put our seed trays inside the house and then they go out to like harden up and we have a little a little tiny porch on the deck that's for like our potted plants and trees that we try to sell at our some upcoming food festival And then down below in the backyard, we have um, a keyhole design garden where we try to like maximize the growing space but still have some access for the wheelbarrow to pass. And that has a big arch where we train our tromboncino, um, rampicante, that's the variety of zucchini that we plant that we find is bug resistant. And um, we have a fence, so we grow all along the fences of our, our backyard townhome. It's not It's not very different to like how people grow in backyards in England in their little row houses, just espaliering, espaliering the, the trees up against the fences as well. And because of that, yeah, we do grow 300 pounds right now. And it, and it took us maybe three years to get it to that state that it's currently in. Um, this year we were out touring American farms and national parks for three weeks and a host of other excuses. We didn't plan as well, as well as we could. So we, we could optimize for more than 300 pounds, especially with our young fruit trees not really contributing much yet in terms of yield. But right now, that's the number. And I think the other answer, other than planting in those seven layers and or more other food forests, is diversity. We grow about 100 different annual and perennial species in our garden. It's roughly a 50-50. 50 split between perennials and annuals and we also do a three season crop rotation around our perennial plants so we we consider like the whole year as being spring summer and the fall slash winter season so we found that you can conservatively conservatively get a high yield in a small space each year by applying some key multipliers like nurturing your soil life We have composting bins and in like three kinds of composting, bokashi, vermicompost, and a three-by-three-foot bin that we, we can turn. We do our, um, and we do seasonal crop rotations as well that will boost like that life if you plant in heavy feeders like um, sunflowers or corn or tomatoes. You, after that season, that summer season is passed in the fall, we'll plant some legumes in there or rather the root crops. And then in the spring, we'll plant the legumes. So diversity of planting, utilizing different layers, um, is the key to stability. And I think this is truly a principle because it translates even a broader, our broader culture. Everything is richer because it's more diverse. Right? So real quick, take me back there. You mentioned three types of composting. The first one, I didn't quite catch what you said. You had vermicomposting oh. and bin composting. What was the first one? And, and, and tell us about Bokashi. what that is. What yeah. is that? So Bokashi is... a. Uh, a Japanese doctor, like scientist, basically, um, I guess, came up with this, but it, it wasn't his original, original idea. People say that it came from Korean or organic farming or Korean farming. 
Um, and it's fermenting your normally non-compostable organic things, such as bones, um, mar- you know, fat, and um, citrus that don't like to go into the vermicompost bin. Like the worms don't like citrus. Sure. So we put them in bone, like anything that's like meats and 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 some people say don't put you know, pasta or rice in the in the big bins because you might attract rodents. So anything that we think that doesn't usually fall into or usually falls into that category of do not compost, but that's still organic, we put into a an airtight bin and we inoculate it with a bran, a fermented a bran that has EM or effective microorganisms with it. And the reason that Bokashi came about is because the the the, dog, the scientist who created effect like the TM trademark effective microorganisms was also the one who you know, he, that was part of his study. So the only thing with that sort of um, fermenting method is it's not finished after a month of it sitting in that airtight bin. It's not quite finished. It's fermented. You get a little tea out of it that mm, you know smells like you. Would, you, you were pickled something, but you have to put it then. It's like a two-stage thing. You then add it to your garden where you think your soil needs more mending or um, where you, a, a garden portion, a part of your garden that's not being used, and then you let it cure even more or decompose even more. And then after three weeks after that, then, you know, it becomes part of your garden and it, and it feeds it that way and you just feel, you just find pieces of, you know, broken bones. That's awesome. It, it does sound very similar to some of the stuff with Korean uh, methodologies, oh, uh, using IMOs or indigenous microorganisms and cultivating those and using fungi. And, and I imagine the reason for the three-week kind of resting period is that in that container, you've probably got a lot of anaerobes. So we're letting yeah. the anaerobes die. You want to die anaerobe? Here's oxygen. Now you'll die, right? So we're, we're, we're killing the anaerobes by exposure to oxygen and then using that. So uh, that's really cool. I want to dig into that. It's not every day I hear about a type of composting I don't know about. So that's really, oh, wow. that's really cool. Yeah, I'm glad. So let's yeah. talk a little bit about pests. You mentioned trombuccino, one of my favorite squashes. Squash <laughs> bugs still kind of tear into it a bit here, but at least the, the evil vine borers can't get in the vine. Um, yeah, you can see it fighting back, right? Yeah, it's like no, you're not getting in. I, I there, there's, I'm, all, I'm dead inside anyway. There's nothing here for you. Where like you know, you get something like a, a nice pumpkin or something, and they just go in there and they just hollow it out. Um, but that just makes me think of pests in general. One of the things that we do end up with is more pest activity in the suburbs and urban environments than I think people would expect. They think all the pests are out on the farm. Well. Out on the farm, there's trees and bushes and woods and miles and miles of places for the pests to spread out. In urban environments, you've got all these little niches, these little micro-niches that they can produce and reproduce in. But then somebody puts in a garden, it's like, oh, look at that. Ah, yum. So everything from you know squash bugs to other insect pests to things like you know raccoons or, and what have you. How do you guys deal with pests in, in your operation? Yeah, we get that question all the time. Most of the time, and, and this goes out to anybody who's ever had a pest in their backyard. Normally, people come to us and say, I don't like to garden because I had my prized tomatoes or apples or so-and-so, and the squirrels, deer, etc., decimated yeah. it. So I got nothing. And we feel for these gardeners because they start out with such enthusiasm, and before they re- receive any positive outcomes, nature has come in an unpredictable way. 
so um, they don't want to hear a theoretical answer. <laughs> Your backyard ecology is out of whack until you get a more balanced system to growing with more natural food sources for these animals. They're going to target you. We feel that's the correct long-term advice, but we need to give them something constructive that they can do in the short term, and this is what we do as well. So first, observe the patterns of the animals. Most mammals are creatures of habit. They remember where they got nice food, and they usually go back to that spot frequently with the expectation to get the same food. So once you learn their patterns, then you can work with various techniques to divert them or grow trap crops or things they really aren't interested in. And second, um, don't be, feel bad about using fences. So that was our first, um, th that was the thing that kept the deer out of our backyard is the fences. And that's what we, we really recommend to most people. Either you eat the deer, <laughs> shoot the deer, eat the deer. That's the permaculture um, advice, right? Or um, build the fences to give you some breathing room. And fencing can really be effective for deer and rabbits if done the right way and can be done cheaply enough that it can be the difference maker in protecting your garden long enough that you get that positive feedback of a yield, uh, enough that you start looking into more natural solutions like edible fencing or growing crops that they're unfamiliar with. And in the end, you want to share your harvest equitably with nature, but your harvest needs to become abundant first. So we have many berries in our yard, like roomies and strawberries that the birds love. They don't peck the other fruit. They set up nests because they feel confident. Uh, their gardens an oasis for them. But sometimes, you know, what does Jeff Lawton say about this? He says that, oh, you don't have a mosquito problem. Like, you have a lack of dragonfly problem. So you're always trying to bring in, what else can I bring in to like eat them up? You always have the pests. You always have the mosquitoes, I think, to some degree. But you want to bring in that diversity that'll work with them, that'll eat the cabbage loopers, the, the parasitic aphids, um, parasitic wasps that will eat the tomato hornworm when you see that in action it's really cool but um yeah i could go there there are so many like if you usually we'll, we'll do specific like what's your mammal or what's your insect and then okay we'll have like we'll be able to narrow down a little bit what what certain short-term things you can do would be um but yeah i attended if you want if you would like me to go into the topic of mycopesticides i'd be happy to talk about that too Yeah, definitely, because I think one of the things that hurts people is they go watch something like Greening the Desert and all, and mm -hmm. they condense like six months of work into seven and a half minutes, and it's all natural <laughs> and whatever. So then the person feels like, well, then the best thing to do is nothing, you know. And I like I just recently did a show on choosing disease-resistant vegetable varieties. Like, yeah. I always have cucumber mosaic virus. Okay, we'll grow Park Eureka. But it's a hybrid. It's a cucumber that grows, mm. right? So, like, I making, love that. You know, like, make a decision to take a proactive action based on the feedback you're getting, which is all the blister beetles ate your cucumbers, and now you need to get rid of blister yeah. beetles. So so what, what do you mean by micro-pesticides? So, micro-pesticides, like pesticides made out of fungi. Okay. Actually, this is like some new, new hot topics that um, the author, mycologist Chad Potter, presented at a recent Farmers Association conference we attended. What's his um, name again? Because uh, something. Chad Potter. Chad Potter. What, what right. book he wrote? But um, is he, he the dude from Mushroom Mountain? I know him. Yes, okay. yes, yeah. yes. That's the one. Yes, and so. Um, Well, before I get into that one, going back to, yeah, the number one thing that stops people, and for anybody who's listening, 
the number one reason that like, you start growing organic and then you're like, oh, I have pests. And then you go back and use the pesticides because, because um, you, you get so disheartened with the number of pests you have. And so Trad Cotter offers this alternative to the pesticides that are out in the market. He says if, if we could um, eliminate all the pesticides that we currently have, the chemical cancer-causing ones, and instead have myco-pesticides, pesticides that are actually fungi that happen to, and they're the, the strain of fungi that like uh, mummifying your insects. Eat, and then they eat them. They like drill a hole in them, lay their eggs there, or and then mummify the whole insect. So he he has a great talk um, that I I recorded. And during this conference, I could not understand a thing, single thing he was saying because I was a like starstruck. I was right beside uh, I was right sitting right beside Michael David Phillips, the author of Holistic All Orchard. And in front of me was Trad Cotter. And I didn't even know anything about mushrooms. My husband, Dave, is the mushroom person who grows our mushrooms and everything. But I was just really interested in like, okay, mycopesticides. I like new things. I like learning about new research. And so he um, was able to, there's two strains right now that that are being used for this purpose. And commercially, uh, the the product that's out there that's, you know, used by organic growers who want to use mycopesticides is called Botanigard, B-O-T-A-N-I-G-A-R-D, Botanigard. And the other, other uh, the strain that, that's in that, in that mycopesticide is Bulvaria. It's called Bulvaria. And then the strain that Paul Stamet, the fungi.com, um, grew, recom- um, is working on is Metarhizum. And he has, does not, has not put his Myco pesticide out in the market yet because it's super super being researched and and so on. But Trad Cotter says you can do this at home. So in his own words, he trained the fungi to attack only a certain kind of house fly. Because he said mushroom growers are always always have flies growing alongside their mushrooms. So he taught us in his presentation to um, take the commercial product Botanigard and um, and he ordered, he actually was able to do this for his birthday. He ordered like a hundred or a thousand, um, virgin Drosophila flies. And he took 10 of them in a jar. And then he had this, he, he, the jar, he, he put the, he put the botanigard into that jar with the 10, um, fruit flies. And the botanigard, um, killed two of them. So by mummification. And the eight of them were flying and so on. So he took those two, that were killed and put them in another jar hmm. and he had them go out and kill other um he trained in that way he he sort of target specified that this back this fungi only attack or mummify houseflies and so he said i did this in jamaica um in a in a field of sugarcane where they had pests and he, he found they found one pest that was mummified by fungi and they ground it up because at this point, what you can do is you can grind up all these dead flies, um, mix it up into a blender, and then put in your backpack sprayer, and then you spray your fields with it. So if if fruit flies were your <laughs> were your pests, right? But if it were a different if were a different pest like cucumber beetles or squash bugs, then you would train your fungi to attack only the the, the cucumber beetle or squash bugs, and then grind that 
that into powder. So basically, you... the way this works is you get this base fungi, and mm-hmm. you throw a whole bunch of these these pricks into a jar. Yeah. And you throw this fungi in there with them, and you wait for it to 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 jack a couple of them up, uh-huh. and then that's your seed spores to propagate exactly. that specific strain. So it's like fungi warfare against these insects. And yeah. I guess then you could start, because I looked this botanic guard up, like you can even buy it on Amazon. It's mass market right, right now, right? Yeah. So I guess you could start with using that, and then out of that, select based on what it murders. So you're making your like specific murder fungi to murder fire <laughs> ants or squash bugs. or cute. Yeah. No, I don't mind murdering fire ants. They need to die. Yes, I have welts all over my body just from this oh week. No, they need that's to exactly- die. Yes, that's exactly what Trad Cotter used it on because they were, they had like three colonies of fire ants on his property and they invited a bunch of people over like a big festival or whatever and, and they had fire the ants. The fire on. ant murder festival. That's, yeah. that's going to be a thing here. The fire ant murder festival. That is, I, I don't want to dig down well, too deep into that because then we're going to not go anywhere else today. I know. Because, but right. I, thank yeah. you for giving me yet another thing to spend like, you know, 18 straight hours digging into. Um, Wow, I mean, and you mentioned, you mentioned, you yeah, I wanted to give you something unique and wow. valuable, like you said in your number one requirement for your podcast. No, that's just awesome, and like, you know, you mentioned being in Star Trek, Paul Stamets, that dude, jeez, man, I I met him at, uh, I think it was Permaculture Voices too, and uh-huh. his his knowledge is, they need to, he needs to go into a room and have everything he knows cataloged and recorded in case he dies in a car wreck or something. Like, you oh, yeah. can't lose the knowledge that's in that mind. It's it's unbelievable. So, okay, I'm going to dig into that. Uh, mycopesticides, wow. Um, and I'm going to need to reach out to Trad again and see if maybe I can get him on to talk about that because that's... Oh, yeah, you should because he's the coolest. He, he's a really cool talker. So. That's, that's earth-shattering, man. Um, <laughs> and it makes sense, too, right? So, like... Out of all these little fungi, there's going to be one or two or three that are going to be like, yeah, I like to kill squash bugs. I like to grow on them and infest them and murder them and propagate my species. And then, like any fungi, once you have, once it's been colonized, it makes more of itself. So now I can just cultivate it and I can just make as much as I want. Yep. Yeah, they're going to die. Fire ant murder <laughs> festival, baby. All right, so. Let's talk a little bit more about the small spaces, though, right? So what makes you focus on that versus larger-scale permaculture? Is it just because, for you, that's what you have, or do you see, like, unique, valuable things in the small space, regardless of where you are? Yeah, well, small spaces are where most people live. So we believe that we can make the most impact where most people live, even though it's slow, grassroots, one backyard at a time. We just got back from an epic road trip. We left Northern Virginia, went up to Maryland, Pennsylvania, Ohio, 15 states in 18 days, up to Glacier National Park, Missoula, Montana, down Oregon to California. And in California, it's vast, but most of the people live only in San Francisco and L.A. or, you know, their suburbs. And we visited large farms and food forests. But because, yes, you're right, our experience, most um we we find ourselves in this suburban setting and we figured maybe we shouldn't dream about fleeing to a country farm and instead work with what we have 
instead of fighting our circumstances, we thought and prayed about whether this is it, this is what we actually were meant to do, help, help suburban urban families learn how to grow their own food, and we think this is it. So, yeah, we may grow, we may move to a, a, a slightly bigger house with a bigger, with a bigger, not so, not so big house, but bigger acreage, because right now it's so small and there's so many things we want to test, but, um, Right now, I think this experience is valuable to people who, who are in our same situation, who are in a city, urban, suburban situation. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I go back to the other thing I think of with understanding small spaces is that I don't care if you have three acres like me or 30 acres or whatever. If you're, if you're not growing, you know, row crops like corn and potatoes or whatever, if it's on some level of commercial production, for your use... And maybe fruit trees would be an outlier, like, because if you could put in, like, kind of a zone three, zone four system of trees, you could have huge mass crops. But from a day to day, I'm going to grow my vegetables, I'm going to grow berries, whatever. Your maximum production is always going to come from a small space anyway. Because mm -hmm. if, and if you don't do it that way, after a couple of years, you're going to be like, I don't like walking this much. And you're going to do it, right? You're, you're going to pare it down. And there's a lot of advantages. One of me, you keep honing back in very, very uh, smartly on soil fertility. If you're managing a few hundred square feet of bed, you can literally manage that soil a square foot at a time. Um, and when you're trying to manage an acre, even, you can't. It's not possible. You can actually look in a garden bed and say that one plant just doesn't look as good as the plants around it. And I don't see any reason other than soil fertility. So then you can kind of soup up that one area where can yep. you imagine doing that in a cornfield, even a half acre cornfield? I mean, you'd just like, like a, you'd look like an idiot running around out there. Uh, that one's a little small. Put a little extra. Like you can't do that where you can like gardeners have always grown the best soil that's ever existed. I think as long as gardens have existed. So I think there's just a massive advantage to no matter how much land you do have, having that small space that is very, very intensively managed. That's so true. Yeah, that's why we love um, John Jevons' technique too, because we, we 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 can grow more intensively using the you know, the French intensive technique of putting in our our crops in sort of a hexagonal way. You use and you can tend them. Every like you said, it's it's more commonly tended, more often tended than acres and acres of of uh, rows of crops. You're right. Awesome. So tell us about some of the people that you have helped to grow food, um, people around the United States, maybe people in your own backyard. Yeah. So like you said, you start with your own backyard and then the neighbors see, and then you figure, find out who all the gardeners are in your neighbor neighborhood. And then eventually we started having like every, every spring um, seed starting parties at our house where we invite the neighbors to come and go home with a tray of seeds and we exchange seeds that way and our neighborhood's very diverse and and that we have a Bangladeshi neighbor who doesn't speak any English but we we just trade our seeds and we can see her her squash growing like crazy her squash is also bug resistant because it's coming from Bangladesh um and I don't know what it what it's called but um that starts like little by little people seeing what you're doing and then wanting them wanting to do the same now our Our, one of our neighbors, even on, on the left, she doesn't want to garden at all. She's, she's ill, but she says, like, do what you want with my backyard. Mm. And that's just helped us, um, 
you know, we give her the the food that just helps helps us like play around a little, a little bit more that we grow in her backyard and and so it grows. But helping people around the U.S. that's that's where our heart is helping suburban families. We only have a few clients; they're spread all over. But we try to know all of them and their gardens by name. And one of the reasons for our cross-country trip was actually to visit with some of them and be on the ground with them instead of on Zoom conference calls uh, where we try to, um, you know, encourage them and you know, give them direction as to what to grow, uh, to do next in a permaculture way. And to really get to know the landscape and the climate and the ecological history of the areas that they were living in. We have some super amazing Super mom dads, super moms and dads were doing this permaculture gardening thing in multiple locations, their backyards and their schools. And some of them are growing in pots, but at least they're doing something. It's a step. And hopefully from that, they want to do more. And the more you grow, the more you want to grow, just like us. As much as we want to, we're not financially ready to move into a home where we could have more land, but we do what we can with what we have. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's kind of the mainstay around here. For everybody, yeah. everybody has more resources than they realize. And when you start utilizing them, you start to realize how much you have. And I think, like, a lot of people are you know, kind of saving up, retooling their life for that one day when they get to move to a bigger place and whatever. And mm. I, I, I look at that and think, what a waste. Because, so let's say you guys do get to move. Like, if you guys get a quarter acre to work with, I mean... Like, what are you going to be able to do with that because you've already learned how to maximize a 40th? Like, ah, like I mean, yeah. I think it would be for our trees mainly and the in-law house yeah. <laughs> and my parents' house. But, like, it would be our, our big family. We have six kids. So we're hoping that's going to be, like, the, the party house that people come back to. But um, it would definitely be more, more farmy and more experimental because we want to do um, – we want to, like, go and do more – uh, research stuff where we're researching different varieties and and seeds and right now with the, with the space that we have we can't quite do that but you're right yeah I mean I'm ready for whatever whatever God gives us if we're going to do it then you know then it's meant to be if we don't then we're making we're happy here and we're doing the most of what we can here awesome so um, talk to us a little bit about the kids in your title one school yeah, so in our neighborhood, it's kind of an immigrant, um, you know, neighborhood where we have maybe 30 different countries in one school. And our, our local school that we, our kids walk to is Rolling Ridge. And we've been volunteering there for about five years now. And one of the main, many takeaways I had from our trip in, to Missoula, Montana in particular, where we visited uh, something called a peas farm, a full working farm with a CSA that helped stock their food pantries regularly um, was that they 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 utilize the whole community like high schoolers interns from the University of Montana people living in nursing homes were coming um, were benefiting from this this farm and it was orderly because it was collaborative and the main impetus of, of us starting a school garden in the first place was we saw this unused courtyard space so most of the public schools in Virginia are made having this courtyard potential space for whatever people want to do with it, but it doesn't really get tended because most people are busy with the academic portion of school. <laughs> so we look at it and we looked at it with this empty and mowed and a big lawn and we thought, well, why don't we grow a garden here? And because it's coming from the parents, 
um, the principles key into that a little bit more when it's coming from the parents. And we, were, we, we wanted this school garden to be a place for the families of different backgrounds to come and share in their different cultures. International night is one of those nights that we do in our school, but the gardens have brought many ethnic parents and kids together as well. So it's cool to see kids seeing nature for the first time. And after five years, and it doesn't always happen that way. The first year, I mean, you hardly have any in, any buy-in. I had a principal who believed in us and one teacher, and then it was it was hard, you know. But now the culture is really changing, where it's kind of trendy to have more and more of these school gardens, and there we got. We have like loads of money grants that we are e- what we easily could get, but we don't. We didn't have that many volunteers in the beginning, and I think that's starting to change now, where we have more teachers who are bringing their kids out to teach, even just like math, because we have a big blackboard there, and more teachers this year who I've already met with. Like last last Monday, I had four teachers, two principals, and two teachers come, and, and three of them didn't. We're just like surprise. And then we talk about a little bit of the school garden and just emailing us, how can we use this garden to teach outdoors? So it's, it's a cool place to be a volunteer garden parent um, right now. You can do this too in your school. It's not going to come right away, just like growing any garden, the stability and and uh, it's, things start rolling year three, year four, year five, but not right away. So I encourage anybody who has this sort of drive to start a community garden or one in your school that you, you can do it. The resources are up. Absolutely. That's that's really cool. Um, you are in kind of this um, urban environment. In Washington, D.C., you talk about people that look over other people's fences and complain. Have you had any issues with neighbors reporting or HOAs, or have any of the people that you've helped had those issues, you know, like, Oh, they're growing food. It's going to destroy the property values or something like that. Because, I mean, part of it to me is, like, whenever somebody says, I want to preserve my property values, I'm like, so you want to make sure your kids can never afford a house. That's nice. Uh, Right? But, I mean, there's ways around this. So have you had to deal with that at all or any ideas for it? Yeah, every year almost we've had HOA issues. We're we're, (laughs) luckily the people that we, like our Bangladeshi Bangladeshi neighbor who doesn't speak English, (laughs) My, my my daughter goes to school with her granddaughter, who's her interpreter. And my daughter was saying, Mom, this is so funny. She said, her, the daughter was translating the HOA letter to her. And she said something like, you cannot grow any fruits in your front yard. Oh, oh, you cannot grow any, I'm sorry, you cannot grow any vegetables in your front yard, Grandma. And then, and then her granddaughter said, oh, but you're growing tomatoes. So I guess that's a fruit. So you can grow tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> So she's grow she grows them anyways. So they're yeah. all, her laosha, her red spinach is coming up. And um we have HOA issues. So we tried to meet with them and rally some of the neighborhood along with us. So further west to us, the uh the development there is turning more towards HOAs that want community gardens and want um don't don't want fertilizer on their lawns and so on. So we tried to meet with them, rally their neighbor our neighbor moms um to a meeting. So I so this had an impact in that they no longer use Roundup to fertilize our common lawn. Yay! Awesome. But at, at, yeah, but at one point they threatened. Yeah, they threatened to fine us for growing food in the front yard. So we, we still do that. I submitted like my sketch of a lot of pollinator plants and and names of plants that they weren't familiar with, and they approved it. So we still do that, but in a more discreet way because there are grapes going up my my um. And if they hear this, I feel like I think as long as they think it looks good, they don't care because we. 
we see them too. And now, because we're getting to know more and more of the neighbor, um, a neighbor, one neighbor just told me like, oh, I like, uh, I know the HOA board director and I wanted to tell him that we want, we want to do a, a community garden. So that might be in the works in the future. If she, if she, she's going to talk to him, then I'm going to go and, you know, <laughs> going help, help build that garden with them if they need it. So. Yeah, yeah so I mean, far. I'm harder on HOAs than anybody, but I think a lot of it is is not so much due to malice, but more ignorance. Like, That's true. You know, I don't think they know what we're growing, so it's more like, does it look good? Yeah, and um, they, they just yeah. assume if it's edible, it must look trashy or farmy or redneck or whatever. Like, they don't even understand what they're saying when they say that, and then they have power. Those two things, well, as you can see from government... You give people power that don't know what they're doing, they generally do bad things with the power. Even if they mean well, because mm. it's like taking somebody who doesn't know how to even drive a boat or a car and saying, here's the plane, fly the plane. Like, that's not going to end well, right? That's not good. Like, they might get it up off the ground. That's even worse, because now it's coming down somewhere. And I think that's how a lot of HOAs are. They have this power... And then they don't really understand what they mean when they make a rule. And then it's very subjective. Like, well, this fence that somebody wants to put in is okay, and this one <laughs> yeah. isn't. Well, why? Well, because this one looks like all the other fences we already have. Uh, there is an HOA here that I just I, – I don't know why anybody lives there. But it, it's the, 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 the place is called Emerald Cove. And people are required, not just you can only, but are required to put out green Christmas lights only at Christmas. So that when oh, you wow. drive back in Emerald Cove, it's all green. And, like, they they limit how much, but they really, like, even harass some of the residents who refuse to put out any lights at all. And, oh my and God, God help you if you that's put ridiculous. up some red and green lights. Then I mean, oh. Oh, you can't do that. Like, And, and that's, like... I don't get why anybody lives in an HOA, but then, like, where you're living, it's probably not a lot of places without one. That's true. There's not a lot of places without one, but um, I would say, like, work with them, you know. It's, it's all about, like, that communication. The worst part is when, if you don't communicate with them, that's that's when they start getting, you know, nastier and nastier. But if you're always keeping those channels open for communication and you get more people involved to like come to the meetings. I, I even like had a presentation and I like, would you like a presentation on Roundup? I would love to give you one. Or would you like a presentation on, you know, I, I could do more on that end, but I'm like, I'm just going to focus on the people who already are wanting to grow organically. Um, and as long as, you know, they can, they can have their, their if they want their silly, their silly rules, but just, that really is ridiculous about the, 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 the lights. Well, I think that's all. Yes, it is. And that's one of the reasons why we also want to move. But, you know, that being said, <laughs> that being said, like this neighborhood, the people who actually live here, I think, can change that HOA thing. Absolutely. Too. I mean, you're back to the old problem with any form of government because HOA is just a form of government. The people that would be best in government don't want to be because the people best in government don't want to screw with other people's lives. And therefore, they have no desire for power. So they don't want to be in government. And there are other people you need in government. So the people that like to tell other people what to do and like to dictate things and like to have power, they naturally gravitate toward administrative-type positions, and they like to be in government because they want to be in charge. And, 
Yeah, it's I'm I'm staying out in the county, man. They're not telling me what to do. Um, so I, I know a, a person you've learned a lot from. You consider a mentor is Wayne Wiseman, who I think is awesome, by the way. Um, what is because I see this in your notes here that you've kind of picked up from him. Whole house agriculture. What do you mean by that? Yeah, this is a term he uses. I have not yet attended like his own whole house agricultural agriculture um, class, but I'm always asking him every year if he's offering it because I never. It, when he does, I, I'm pregnant or something, and then and then we and then now lately he hasn't been um, doing any courses on it. But it's basically the as we learn more about how what you can grow in your garden, we're constantly amazed at how many of the things we use in our house that come from organic, natural sources. So um, how you heat your home in a natural way, how you would use compost toilets at home. Um, it's like the whole house becomes that micro-economy before it goes out into the bigger um, local economy. And you partly, you know, off the grid or feeding the grid with your own with your own supply of energy. So this is especially the case when we look at things, um, for instance, in your garden, like I mentioned, and if we look at herbal medicine or household toiletries like lotion and toothpaste. So one of the main research goals is to translate our experiments into a, a systematic approach to deciding which things like to grow and which things are more cost effective in terms of their function in our house. So some of, some of our best successes have been this past winter with medicinals where we harvested echinacea root, elderberries, and used that along with yarrow, sage, mushrooms, etc. from our garden as our first line of defense against the yearly colds and flus instead of immediately reaching for the Tylenol or antibiotics. So not only has it saved us lots of money and doctor's visits with our six kids, it's given us confidence and independence where we aren't so blindly reliant on an outside system for our health, for our food, for our medicine, but instead we have this this whole house working for us, this whole house agriculture that's feeding us and feeding our whole family. So, yeah, like I, I, I almost brought to my, my daughter to the... Um, to the urgent care because she had pink eye and, but I had, um, golden seal that was, um, powdered and I made into a little eye drop solution for her. And within 30 minutes, I've done that twice now. So I didn't think it was real. This is a rosemary glad star. She's an herbalist recipe. I didn't think it was true. You just steep the golden seal and then you drop it in your eyes like an eye wash. And then the pink eye went away. And, and then whenever they have fevers, yarrow, the, the formula for the traditional medicinal, um, what is that called? Not throat coat, but their, their other one. Uh, <laughs> I'm blanking out. But one of the, one of the formulas for whenever you have fevers is yarrow. Yeah, so I do, yeah. yeah, yeah, yarrow, peppermint, and elderberry. And then that's the, then I steep it into hot water, and that's like what they drink first. And then it helps reduce the fever. And we don't have to go to the doctor. So I think this is the, the year that we've had the least number of doctors visits. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So, like, one of the things people say to me, like, I want to get started in permaculture. What should I do first? And I'm like, okay, so what have you done in the past? Like, wh where are you at in this? Nothing. Oh, okay. Then just plant a garden. But I want to do just plant a garden. Just learn 
Don't even try to start seeds your first year. Go get some stuff at a nursery. Plant a garden. Learn to garden. So with that in mind, as we kind of get toward the end here, what are some of your tips for new gardeners? Yeah, you're right. It, gardening is the most green choice. It, it has more. We had a whole blog on this. More than solar or wind. You want to be green. It's like that um, quote. The greatest change we need to make is from consumption to production, even if on a small scale, in our own garden. If only 10% of us do this, there is enough for everyone. Hence the futility of revolutionaries who have no gardens, who depend on the very system they attack, and who produce words and bullets, not food and shelter. And this is a quote from Bill Mollison in the 70s, talking about how, how impactful gardening is. So yes, That is true. Um, any tips for newbie gardeners? Just start. Just go and and plant something. Plant anything. Plant. If you, the next time you eat a squash or tomato, save the seed and stick it into a pot of soil and see what happens with the seedling. And then um, learn from learn little by little. Don't be overwhelmed. I hope <laughs> it's not very profound, but I think to begin, William Wordsworth says. Begin. Yeah, take a step. <laughs> the the long the journey the longest journey still begins with the first step, and I think that taking that first step is is awesome. I mean, the things I would add is like, man, mulch and compost forgives a lot of mistakes. Like if you you keep things moist and mulched and composted, and and you're gonna get something. Like you'll have problems, and I think one of the biggest things I would say to new gardeners is like, don't get discouraged when crap doesn't work. Because a lot of crap's not going to work. Like, it's going to happen. Yeah, I still kill stuff. I still kill stuff, but the I kill stuff, stuff all the time. Yeah, more stuff survives than dies. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know what's going on right now. I think it's like, it's just Texas, so plants are like, oh, it's mid-August. I think I'll die now. Bye. Um, <laughs> Y'all walk out. I have this beautiful bed full of green beans that are just ready, just starting to flower. And every once in a while, one of the beans just goes, I don't like it here anymore. Just the whole plant just immediately caves in and dies. And I'll figure out what's going on eventually. And like, so I've been doing this honestly on some level or another. I've been doing this since I was eight years old. Wow. So if I kill crap, you're going to kill crap. I mean, that's just the way it's going to be. And it's okay. And like you said, if you're planting enough in total uh, numbers and enough in diversity, you know, certain things are going to work. And then over time, you kind of hone in on, like, these 12 things do really good. So I'm going to put a lot of effort into these 12 things. Mm -hmm. And then you build out your diversity in the peripheral, and you'll find, if you think about it this way, like, people want to grow 10,000 things or whatever. But when you go to the produce section, you buy the same 12 things every week. That's so if you true. can grow that, you're directly coming against that grocery bill. And, and I think it's awesome you mentioned that quote from Bill. That was actually our quote of the week last week. Oh, <laughs> it's awesome though because the synchronicities there, and I do think it is one of the most insurgent type things that humans can do is to grow their own food. Because if you look at every major system of support, it's now been centralized, and when you centralize something, that means a very small number of people control something that the vast majority of people depend on. Whether it's healthcare, whether it's food, whether it's energy, no matter what it is, when you centralize it, by the very definition of centralization, 
small number of people control a large number of people. When you reach into that abyss and just say, yeah, that one you took away, I'm just going to take that back. And I'm just going to take responsibility for that myself. And I'm going to feed myself. Like it's, it's, and it's one of those things that's almost impossible in our current society. Like there were societies where people went in and just smashed every garden to control people. That would, you might get away with it to get rid of a front yard garden today or something. But even that, you know, all of a sudden they're, the media is finally useful and they descend like vultures and they make the politicians look like idiots and, and, and what have you. So it's one of those things like it's a, it's a complete act of rebellion. And then get there, it, it's, it's powerful. It's a, the Chinese thing of, of be like water, right? So just move to the place of least resistance. And then you're very hard to control. How do you, how do you grab onto water with your hands? How do you crush water? How do you fight water? Water is like this like, thing that we all use, and yet it can destroy an entire city when it's got enough momentum. And that's what growing your own food's like. Like, you can't stop this. And then how do you defeat an army, no matter whether it's an insurrection, an insurgency, a rebellion, nation to nation? The number one way you defeat an army, the number one way you defeat a resistance movement is you starve it. If you can starve out your enemy, you will become victorious because eventually they will, they will succumb to, I need food more than I need whatever this thing is I'm fighting for. If you look at World War II and the blockade and the attack on Britain, Britain survived because it figured out how to feed itself. And so if you want to be an insurgent, right, and that's why they say they have, they, have, they have bullets but not food. They have gardens but not food. Um, if you grow your own food, you can't be starved. Yeah, that was the whole um, um, climate victory gardens. Oh, my, sorry, the victory gardens yeah. of the First and Second World Wars were, were to make sure that everybody was like, I think that was a great, that was a great um, point in his time where you were making sure that your own troops were, were well fed, but the whole um, countries, all these countries were trying to feed them. Yeah. So, I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever watched the documentary from the BBC called Wartime Farm. No, I haven't. Oh, I'm no, you got to watch now. that. Find that's, that's, that's. Wartime Farm. Wartime Farm. So it's not really permaculture, it's more conventional, but. I mean, it was yeah. the it was the thirties and forties. They did what they could, but it's it's a it's a story. These three historians um, move into like a, a farmhouse, like a preserved farmhouse from the thirties in the countryside of England, and they live and they farm the way farmers had to farm during World War II during the blockade. And oh wow! Up to having like people that come in that are historians do reenactments, like pretend to be like from the war ag. Oh, that's so cool! So like the war Sounds ag. Like the war ag in, in, in Britain during World War II would come in and they would evaluate your farm. And if you weren't producing enough food for the war effort, they would, like, take your farm and give it to a farmer who could produce oh, enough wow. food. They would be like, okay, well, you have this little strip here along the road. I think you could put beans in there, and I think you could grow beans there. Well, we're not sure. No, you're going to grow beans there, or somebody else is going to grow beans on your farm. And oh. it was – they, they go through, like, pig shares where, like – you could do a pig, but then you had to give half the pig. You see, they, they paid for it. They, got, they sold it into the market. But because of rationing it all, half the pig had to go to the general market, to the city, basically, to feed people. Uh -huh. But you couldn't – there wasn't enough food to feed the pig, like grain, because all the grain was going to feed people. So uh -huh. 
they would take all the scraps and feed the pig. Well, one family couldn't grow a pig, so like four families would get together and have a pig club. And then they would all feed all their scraps to the pig, and when the pig was done, it would have to be like watched by an inspector as the butcher took it apart, and then half of the pig got split up between those four families, and the other half went to market. And, oh, wow, that must have been a good pig, though. Oh, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing, though, and it's like people today think they know what it is to give up something or sacrifice. They have no idea. Like, they have no idea what it is to actually be hungry or to actually sacrifice things in, in our modern world. There's parts of the world where that's, that's not true, but right here in America, like, people that think they know what it is to be hungry, they don't know what it is to be hungry. Um And, or they don't know what it is to wonder, really, will I eat tomorrow? And yeah. these people lived through it, and they were better off than most, being farmers, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, they, were so, they were so in need. I don't want to go too much more on this, but they were so in need to the country that, that active farmers were exempt from the draft. Oh, my Be God. Because that's it was so like, cool. it, see, that's what I'm going back to. Like, if you can't feed yourself, you can't win a war. Wow, this is this is such a great history lesson for me because you know, um, Jack, I am not yet a citizen, but I've already applied to be one. I'm just waiting. That's <laughs> so awesome. I'm learning. Yeah, I was, and that was that trip was like seeing America and and learning about that, like how important the farmers are. I, I better watch this movie then. Yeah, it's but like yeah, a, it's like a ten part documentary. They're like an hour apiece, but it's all free. It's all on on YouTube, and then you'll get hooked on the three people in it. They did like a bunch. They did Victorian Farm. They did it Guardian Farm, which is the uh, uh, eras in, in England, because it's all in England, because they're English. And uh, mm -hmm. they did a medieval-like thing, like the 1600s, called Tales of the Green Valley. And then mm -hmm. they did another one, the most recent one, and that's like, now they've kind of got their whole shtick together, they've worked together a lot, called Tudor Monastery Farm, that takes place in the, the Tudor period, uh, which is you know well over a thousand years ago. Uh, it, uh, basically tenant farming in the monasteries and how those people lived. And it's, 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 it's all fascinating. And you realize a lot of stuff that you're like, we're so smart. We figured out how to do this. Oh you're my like, gosh. Nah, I would not, you now, now you've got me hooked. Now nah, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is going to be date night movie. Yeah. yeah. You'll binge that. <laughs> anyway. Um, man, I really enjoyed having you guys, having you on today. Um, you guys even have a blog and a website. I think you mentioned a couple times. You want to tell people about that? Yes. It's growmyownfood.com growmyownfood.com and um, we have a blog there a weekly blog and we also have yeah where you can see some of the things that we're offering our main thing is our grow it yourself garden program so for if you are a newbie and you want some guidance we're basically like garden coaches but with a whole course if you wanted to go through a course on permaculture gardening we have that as well so that would be part of our grow it yourself garden program but thank you jack for having me on here it's such an honor i am always fired up listening to you and speaking to you um live one-on-one -on -one is just mo so super motivating you're one of those you know um hallmarks of permaculture in the u.s and i'm so glad that i could help um be on this program and provide a little bit more of something that you didn't know <laughs> Oh, I, yeah. Because I was worried. I'm like, this guy knows everything. I probably what I'm saying is redundant, but I'm glad that that that, that worked out. No, I've already uh, uh, emailed. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Tad. Uh, Tad Potter. Yeah. Yeah. During like when you were saying that, I was looking him up and emailing him. Like, I got to get you on the show to talk about this, man. So that 
that was fantastic. And I, I'm like, I'm going to cultivate me some squash bug and some some fire <laughs> ant murder murder fungus, man. That's that's awesome. So I really appreciate you being on. I'll make sure I have links to your your blog and your social media stuff and your course and and all of that uh, in the show notes today. If, uh, if people are listening to this in the future and thinking, well, I, uh, where, what was this? Again, it was episode 2490. So, guys, if you want to wow. look up any of the resources for today's show, just get on by the survivalpodcast.com and the search box, type in episode 2490. And this will be the only thing that gets pulled up if you do that. And uh, you can get all of the links and uh, check out. Uh, what Nikki and her husband Dave are doing, again, at growyourownfood.com. Awesome domain name, by the way. Uh, I don't think you've been doing this oh, for... Grow, oh, uh, I grow my own food. Did you say grow my own food or grow your own food? Uh, grow my own food, okay. Oh, yes, grow that's, my own that's food. right. It's growmyownfood.com. Grow <laughs> okay, I messed that up. Uh, but grow my own food. Still awesome domain name. You guys must have snuck in and, and snagged that one. Somebody missed that, so... Um, easy one to remember, even though I screwed up. GrowMyOwnFood.com. Get my check out uh, Nikki's site and uh, check out the show notes for more. And thanks again for all the work you're doing out there and for informing me about something I didn't know about and spending about an hour with us today. Oh, you're you're so welcome. Thank you again, Jack, for all you do. So great interview, and I, I am really digging this uh, mycopesticides thing. Um, Nicole was good enough to. Um, send over to me by Skype instant message four parts uh, to Trad's discussion on micropesticides uh, that she mentioned she videoed. So I will uh, have those in the show notes for you as well, in addition to Nicole's uh, links and her social media and all that cool stuff. I really hope you guys got a lot out of today's episode. I sure did. I enjoyed today's show a lot. And uh, I know sometimes people say, you know, you're turning into the gardening podcast. I just got an email from my buddy Roy. And he said people that are saying that are missing the forest for the trees in a big way. So, you know, there's three primary survival needs. There's more than that, but there's three you've got to have, food, shelter, and water. If you got food, shelter, and water, you can kind of figure out the rest. And, and if you ain't got food, you're screwed. Right? He didn't say that, but I did. If you, that actually sounds like a pretty good slogan. If you ain't got food, you're screwed. Um, and I do believe it is really... Probably one of the, the, the biggest uh, acts of sedition that a society can, can take on. Um, Bill Mollison, who, who Nicole mentioned, referred to permaculture as a, 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 a quiet revolution. But he also referred to it as an insurrection. It's a word that I've latched onto and used quite a bit. And he said it's a peaceful insurrection, but I will add to it, it's, it's, it's probably the most powerful insurrection that you can be part of. And remember, I always liked the word insurrection above revolution. At least I, I grew to that. But we wrote a song called The Revolution Is You, myself and Greg Yoes. That's the theme song you hear at the beginning of every episode of the show. I don't think the insurrection is you would sound as good, so it probably wouldn't work musically. But if, if, if I was going to say what you are today, I would call you the insurrection, not the revolution. And this is why. Revolutions typically simply are two powerful groups using the populace to fight each other so that one can gain control. So when you fight a revolution, you're fighting for new rulers. I want new rulers over me. 
Insurrection is an act of direct defiance from authority, where instead of moving power from one one small group to another, insurrection is about reclaiming power for the individual. And I don't know a better way to do that than growing your own food. So hopefully, uh, if you've been on the fence on doing this, you'll get off the fence. And, you know, it is really a great time to think about the fall garden. If you did not get your garden in this year, this is the time to get the fall garden in, to start getting your plants started and stuff like that. With that, let me remind you, if you like this show and the work that we do and you want to help support us to make sure we're always going to be here to do it, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. But remember, this is absolutely not PBS. This is not public broadcasting. This is Spearco Broadcasting. And I believe in value-for-value exchange. So I do not ask for donations. Actually, I'll tell you this. If you were around way, way back in the beginning, you know that I went over six months where I made a dime with this show. And we started to get some real momentum about third, fourth month into it. To the point where I had people actually send me money as a donation. Because they found out my, in fact, yeah, he's got a PayPal account. We'll use his email address. Oh, that worked. I sent it back. I do not do donations. I do value for value exchange. That's what the MSB is. You join the MSB, you use the discounts, you get your money back, and then some. I, I can't see anybody in this audience that cares about the stuff we talk about all the time. I mean, right down to garden seeds that can't get their money back out of the MSB. And then there's a lot of other cool stuff in there as well that are added, you know, added value. So check it out. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on members and sign up. Honest to God, without that, this show would not exist. There's no way I could have done this for 11 years now without your support. Next, the other way you can support us, and I call this the painless way, just do your online shopping through tspaz.com. All you got to do is go to tspaz.com. And again, I don't ask for donations. You go there, and I have taken the time to catalog over 300 items now that I've spent my own money on, and I bought them, and I used them, and they passed my test, and they are part of my life. And if I, you know, if it's something like today's, which is a book, I'm not going to buy two books. I don't need two books. I got one. I'm good. Uh, but if it's something where's that, if I wouldn't buy it again, I, it doesn't go on T-SPAS. So if you go there, you can see all the stuff that, that I recommend, but no matter what you buy, you help support us in the work that we do. Um, today's book that I have for you is called Fermented Vegetables by Christopher and Kristen Shockey. Um, we talked a lot about growing your own food today, and when you do that, you end up with an abundance, and you need different ways to preserve it and make it last longer, and a great way to do that is fermentation. Additionally, if you look at indigenous cultures across the, the world, uh, the ones we know of that are really not really there anymore, and the ones that still are, Every single one of them had some sort of a fermented food in their life. And our bodies are adapted to work symbiotically with the bacteria that do this fermentation. And we need those in our gut system. So this is a healthy way to live. And it's also a really tasty way to live. And the best book I know for getting started is by, again, uh, Christopher and Kristen Shockey. It's called Fermented Vegetables. It is our item of the day. There's a lot of really cool stuff in there. Here's some of the stuff you can learn how to make in, in this book. How about garlic escape paste? How about fermented horseradish? Uh, when I found out I could do this, I went out and bought some horseradish root because I didn't have any growing uh, just to do this with. Basil paste. Yeah, you're going to plant more basil in that garden. Cherry bombs. Those are made with cherry tomatoes. And Well, as you guessed, it might be a little bit of heat in there, too. How about celery mint salad? That sounds kind of crazy, but it's crazy good. Fresh fennel kraut, 
tomatillo salsa. Everybody talks about making tomatillo salsa. How about making it fermented? It's pretty awesome. Check it out. You'll learn all of that and more in this book. Again, Fermented Vegetables by Christopher and Kristen Shockey. And you can find it, of course, at tspaz.com. Or just go to the survivalpodcast.com and scroll down if you are listening to this in the present or near present time. Uh, remember, the best way to stay in touch with everything we're doing, join the Daily Mail. All you got to do to join the Daily Mail, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on subscribe, fill out a form. Once a day you'll get an email with everything that's new on the blog. That's all you'll get. Maybe a special announcement here and there. That's a couple times a year I'm talking. Otherwise, one email a day. That's what I do now. I do it all manually. It takes me longer to do. But I just put out the stuff that I have for that day once a day in a simple text email. No graphics, no tracking, no nothing. Just some links and some text. Uh, so don't worry. I will not share your information because I'm not stupid. I don't give my customers information away. Y'all are my customers. I don't want to share y'all. Anyway, with that, let's move on to today's song of the day. We are in Woodstock week, and we are talking about all different musicians and pieces from Woodstock, which, again, 50 years ago, 1969 was now 50 years ago. Today's song is by John Sebastian, and it is called Darling, Be Home Soon. From the singer's perspective, the verses are pleas for a partner to spend a few minutes talking before leaving. Uh, Sebastian wrote this song uh, thinking about all of the songs that were out there about women waiting on men who were on the road as musicians and kind of flipped it around. It was actually uh, a sentimental ballad that Sebastian wrote for um, Francis Ford Coppola's movie, You're a Big Boy Now, which was a coming-of-age film about an awkward ma young man looking for love in New York City. Um, this is Sebastian was the front man for Love and Spoonful, and uh, it, it bombed. He wrote the whole uh, music uh, score for the whole movie, uh, and the movie just didn't, didn't do really well. Um, he was... Uh, not actually going to originally be at Woodstock at all. He hitched a ride with the helicopter that was carrying the Incredible Strings band equipment, and he figured he'd just be a spectator at Woodstock. But an early afternoon downpour flooded the stage, and it needed to be cleared of water before Santana's amps could be set up. You can't set up Santana's amps in the, in the rainwater. That'd be bad. Piss off Santana, you know. Uh, Michael Lang, the concert's producer, asked Sebastian to fill in. He took the stage in a tied-to-hide white denim outfit and sang five songs. Uh, the fourth was Darling Be Home Soon. He recalled the audience didn't identify the song with the movie since probably most of them hadn't seen it. Instead, they sort of quieted down and took it in as a love song. My job wasn't to incite, but to mellow everyone the hell out until the stage was cleared. When I finished, the applause from so many people was loud and wide and knocked the wind out of me. The feeling was delicious. If you watch the video for this, and I'll have a link in the show notes, you can see in his face what he's talking about. Feeding off of that crowd energy. And At the end of this, I, when I play these ones from Woodstock, I play the, the, the announcer introing them, the person talking, the whole thing, instead of just the music portion, so you can kind of you know, get a feel of what it was like to be at Woodstock in 1969, 50 years ago. Um, 
and you'll hear him say goodbye. He thought he was done. And so he ends up singing a fifth song, even though I th he thought he was done, probably because they needed him to. There was a the, One day we might actually do the history of Woodstock. It's a crazy story. It's, it's not what most people think. All these musicians that were doing Woodstock, they weren't trying to save the world. They wanted to make money. Uh, they charged an assload to be there, and there were some disputes, and that's a part of what led to a lot of delays, You know, making sure they were getting their money before they showed up. Um, and so there was a lot of this kind of fill-in and, and lost components to Woodstock because the, since the person was never listed as someone who was going to play, then no one ever really thought about it, and they just kind of ended up there. And, and that's what happened here. It's what happened... Uh, with the song we let off the week with, etc. Anyway, um, give this song a listen. I think you'll really like it. it it's, uh, it's too bad the movie flopped so bad because it's a really pretty song. But yeah, maybe one day we'll cover the history of Woodstock. Until now, we'll just have to again remind you, 50 years. 50 years. That's probably longer ago than most of the people, not all, but most of the people listening to the show have been alive. Longer than I've been alive. Having been uh, born in the summer of 1972. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Ladies and gentlemen, John Sebastian.
get to wait an extra minute if you dawdle. But darling, be home soon. It's not just these few hours, but I've been waiting since I started for the great relief of having you to talk to. You're all beautiful. Goodbye. Ladies and gentlemen, John Sebastian.